0: podcast. I'm your host, Nick Giacomas, and today I'm speaking with neuroscientist, Dr. Michael Crer. First, just some brief housekeeping. Uh, I had some technical difficulties with this episode. I was not recording my audio when I was speaking appropriately for about the first half, so the audio will sound a little off compared to what it normally sounds like, but you should still be able to understand everything I'm, I'm saying, and it should be relatively clear. So apologies for that. It goes back to normal about halfway through, and when Dr. Crer is speaking, it sounds like it always does. Anyways, I spoke with Michael, who is a professor at Yale. He's a professor of neuroscience as well as of ophthalmology and visual science. And Dr. Kerr is actually a physicist. His PhD is in physics, but he became a neuroscientist and he runs a neuroscience lab. His lab studies brain development. In particular, they employ advanced imaging techniques and and other techniques that they use to understand the basic mechanisms that mediate brain circuit development, how the brain actually wires itself up when an animal is developing in order to create a fully functioning, mature brain. And we talk a lot about research and topics related to what they study. We talked about learning and memory, different forms of plasticity, including something called cortical map plasticity and what maps are in the brain. We talk about critical periods of plasticity in development. And we also talked about some really interesting research that's come out of his lab recently where they show that in mice, before they're ever even born, when you look at visual parts of the brain in these mice, the brain actually seems to be simulating patterns of activity that the mouse will encounter in the real world after it's born and its eyes open. In other words, parts of the visual Portions of the brain are displaying patterns of activity that look like the patterns that you'll see later on in the brain of that mouse after its eyes open and it's actually looking looking at the world and moving around in it. So, the brain is doing this kind of simulation of the external environment in order to train or pre train the circuits of the developing brain so that they are pre prepared to deal with uh, what the animal is going to encounter, which is pretty cool if you think about it. So, if you're interested in, in brain development or, or learning in and memory, and things like that. This will be a great episode. As always, if you enjoy the content that is provided on the podcast, we really do appreciate five-star reviews on Apple or your favorite podcast directory. Um, Comments, likes, and shares or downloads of the podcast, either the audio version or the video version on YouTube. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural cannabis company specializing in dose-controlled cannabis products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. This episode is brought to you in part by Mudwater, a coffee alternative made with extracts from four different mushroom species and a blend of all natural herbs. Mudwater contains around one-seventh the caffeine content of a normal cup of coffee, so you can get the energy you want in the morning without the same chance for the anxiety, the jitters, or the poor sleep quality that can come from drinking too much coffee. Two-thirds of Americans, just about, are drinking coffee every single day, and the caffeine in that coffee has a half-life in your bloodstream of between five and nine hours for most people. So if you're drinking into the afternoon, afternoon or the evening, there's a good chance that caffeine is still in your bloodstream and it can disrupt the quality of your sleep. So if you're trying to drink less coffee or you think you might have a caffeine habit, and caffeine is absolutely a habit-forming psychoactive stimulant drug, then check out Mudwater. It has one-seventh the caffeine content of a normal cup of coffee coming from masala chai, and it also has cacao, turmeric, sea salt, cinnamon, and extracts from chaga, reishi, cordyceps, and lion's mane mushrooms. The other thing that's really cool about this company is they donate a portion of the revenue to MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. We've actually had people from MAPS on the podcast before talking about their research on MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD and their other work into research on psychedelics. So if you want to support that movement, this is one way you can do it. If you're interested in trying Mudwater, check out their website, mudwtr.com slash mindmatter, and you can use the code mindmatter, all one word, for $5 off. That information will be in the episode description, so check it out if you think you're interested. Michael Thank you for joining me. Cheers. It's nice to be with you, Nick. Can you describe for everyone who you are and and where you're calling in from today? Yeah, you
1: bet. So my name is Mike. Mike Carrere. I'm a professor in the Department of Neuroscience at Yale University. I'm also the Vice Provost for Research at Yale. And I'm calling from uh, Guilford, Connecticut, which is a little suburb of New Haven, Connecticut, where uh, Yale is located.
0: So what do you study as a neuroscientist?
1: Um, I'm interested in brain development. I'm sort of fundamentally curious in trying to understand how the brain wires itself up during development. And that's a pretty big topic. It's a, it's a diverse topic, but it's a, I think it's a fundamental, um, a, a fundamental interest to just understanding brain functions to try to understand how we all get wired up over the course of development.
0: And what's, what's your sort of ultimate aspiration kinds of questions. Why are you trying to answer the kinds of questions that you are
1: asking? Yeah, so of course it's a good question. I'm interested in how we think, right? I want to understand how we think. And uh, that's a you know, $6 million question to use a, a, an old phrase. That's a hard one. And um, I think fundamentally what I decided was at least one reasonable way to try to understand how we think Uh, is to figure out how the brain gets put together in the first place. If we can understand sort of the mechanisms for wiring up the brain, that'll give us fundamental insight into how it is that the brain works, how we think. And, uh, you know, I do that, do those studies by focusing uh, on sensory systems, the visual system in particular, because it's a relatively simple system to understand how the brain wiring occurs over the course of development. So I want to understand how the brain works. Very deep, fundamental question. And I choose to study uh, trying to understand how it gets wired up as a as a mm, as the best entree into in that fundamental question. How do we think?
0: Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about some of the structures and the parts of the brain that your lab studies on your Mm -hmm. lab website. You've got the research overview page and it says something like uh, the brains of animals in the brains of animals. The sensory world is organized in regular neuronal arrays or maps. So what exactly are these sensory maps in the brain?
1: Um, Yeah. So the easiest way to think about it is um, at least one simple thing, a simple way that many people uh, can grasp easily is the map of the body surface. So in the brain, you have areas that respond to stimulation of the body surface, the sensory periphery and neighboring neurons in the brain will respond to stimulation of neighboring sensory receptors on the body surface. And so this is a, a, a basically a map of the body in the brain. So it's in the fundamental feature of those maps is that, there's a preservation of neighborhood relationships, that is neighboring sensory receptors are mapped to neighboring locations in the brain. That's a somatosensory system analog of a map, a sensory map. The same sort of map occurs in the visual system where neighboring positions in the visual world are mapped to neighboring locations in the brain. So it's, it's a sort of morphed map of the visual world in the brain where neighborhood relationships are preserved. That's what we mean by maps.
0: I see, so so morphed map, is that why when people see that image of the so-called somatosensory homunculus, it looks like a very warped human being with exaggerated features for some places?
1: Yeah, exactly, that's exactly right. So, and the the morphed features represent basically the density of receptors on the sensory periphery. So those parts of the sensory periphery, like like your fingertips have lots and lots of receptors. So there's a dramatically enlarged representation of of your fingertips in the brain. And in the visual system, there's an analogous um, morphing where the fovea, the center of your vision, has a very, very high density of photoreceptors. And so there's a, a dramatically enlarged representation or, or piece of the visual cortex, which represents or responds to stimulation of just the, sense, the, the center of your vision, the fovea. So it's a morphed map so that the distances are not preserved, but neighborhood relationships are preserved.
0: So I'm gonna ask a question that's, that's maybe vague, but I do think it's interesting and important. Why would animal brains be organized in this kind of way? Are, are, there other, are there other like biophysically plausible ways you could imagine the brain being organized? And why did evolution create this kind of structure with these kinds of maps?
1: Um, so I, I think these maps are really just the starting point. Of uh, neural computations that lead to, mm, say, cognition, higher order cognition. It's a, it's sort of a basic um, building block or representation of the sensory periphery. That, you know, a fundamental feature of the world are these neighborhood relationships, like neighboring locations on your fingertip or neighboring locations in the visual world. And so, one of the initial roles of the sensory system in the brain is just to take the input from the sensory system and code it in a way which is then easily digestible for higher order processing. So these, these maps are robust in the initial stages of um, neural processing, and then they become quite complex and not obvious, and the, the mapping relations break down. So I, th- I think... It's an efficient way of coding information about the sensory periphery. That's why they're common.
0: And a, a lot of the questions that I want to get at next will have to do with brain development and, you know, the extent to which structures in the brain, such as these maps, are self-organized and, and just sort of an unfolding of things intrinsically specified by the genome versus things that are shaped by experience and that are very malleable. Uh-huh. So, before mm-hmm. we get there, let's start off by talking plasticity, generally speaking. So, what mm-hmm. is plasticity and what are some good examples in the mammalian brain of plasticity?
1: Yeah, okay. So, the plasticity is the malleability or the, um, or the ability of the brain to change its um, response, or in this case, in the case of MAPS, the representation of the sensory world based upon the pattern of sensory input. So, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, maps of representation of the, say the, the body surface into the brain, that map is not fixed. That map can change over time, especially it can change dramatically during development. And so plasticity is the, it would be the changing of the wiring that would lead to a difference in the representation of the sensory world. So, for instance, if you, um, for some reason, are um, lose a finger during early development, so that um, you know your middle finger, let's say you're in an accident, you lose the middle finger, you would no longer have input from that finger into the brain, and the map representing your hand would change over time. It's plastic, such that the two remaining neighboring fingers would come to be represented in neighboring locations in the brain and the middle finger would no longer be represented. It would disappear. That sort of plasticity occurs in spades early in development. It's a remapping or rewiring of the brain to accurately represent the condition of the sensory periphery. It That sort of plasticity is, as I said, very, very robust early in development and much more subdued, um, much more modest in scale as you get older and older, such that the maps become relatively fixed as an adult.
0: And, and what's the purpose of plasticity being at high levels, basically, earlier on in development and then going away? You often hear, especially in the news, plasticity used as a very positive. It's always good. Is mm-hmm. that is that the case? And does that have anything to do with why plasticity sort of wanes over time?
1: So, you know, the honest answer is we don't know. Um, I, I can give you my um, hypothesis or my understanding of why why the plasticity wanes over time. So what it um, what appears to be the case is that the plasticity wanes. Um, it, so the plasticity remains robust in the adult. In, in higher order cognitive areas. Like h- higher order cognition is a very, plat- the brain circuits responsible for cognition are very plastic in the, in the adult. And that's what allows us to think and learn um, as adults. The, the plasticity is um, uh, wanes in representations of the sensory periphery, the sort of input circuits. And then as we get higher up in the sensory and computational hierarchy in the brain, the plasticity is preserved uh, in the adult. So the further you are in the sensory periphery, the earlier in development that plasticity wanes and the circuits become fixed. So it seems to cascade from the outside in. So the plasticity remains robust in the adult for cognitive circuits, but in the, but as you work your way out to the sensory periphery, the plasticity gets uh, less and less and the circuits become more and more crystallized earlier and earlier in development. So that's, um, it seems to be a common rule. The question is, why would that, why would that be? I surmise that um, you're, you're like, your are um, the neural circuit, you're like building a cognitive circuit, a, a cognitive house. And the representation of the sensory world, these maps are the foundation. You need to, you need to have a representation of the world. And that provides a foundation for higher order cognitive um, you know, uh, thinking extraction of, of relationships and features of the world. And so you initially build the foundation. It's a little plastic as the foundation is developing and, and being born. And then it becomes fixed so that the higher order circuits can faithfully rely on the representation, which was built early in development of this uh, external world. So I view it as a, as the, those, those, um, uh, early plasticity is to, to build the right foundation. that foundation becomes fixed. and then the higher order circuits which were are very plastic, remain very plastic, rely on a fixed foundation so it knows what the century world representation is. It needs some um, sort of a, a scaffold, some structure to trust that uh, that is, that, it, you know, that is fixed for the higher order representations to, to, um, to then uh, act on.
0: Interesting. Yeah, that makes
1: a lot.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Yeah,
1: and that's you know that's just a a hypothesis. The way I um, I conceptualize why there's plasticity and why that plasticity wanes over time, and it wanes more in some circuits than others. It clearly the plasticity wanes earlier and more dramatically in the more uh, peripheral circuits. And then as you work your way up in the brain in the sort of cognitive architecture, the plasticity is sustained higher and longer in, in the adult.
0: I see. So if you're looking at a pair of neurons in the brain, the level of plasticity will tend to depend on A, how far into development you are, how old the animal is, and B, how close to your eyes and your ears and the external world that circuit is. The further in, the further right. in, in this cognitive hierarchy you are, the the more plastic the neurons will tend to be later.
1: That's correct. That's right. And it's actually true in reverse too. As you work your way out to the motor system, mm-hmm. the the you know the uh, neural control of muscles tends to be more fixed, but the motor the motor circuits in the higher order brain are more plastic in their representations and their uh, abilities to adjust their control of the, of the motor neurons. So it's sort of on the way in and also on the way out. Mm-hmm.
0: So even though uh, there's quite a bit of plasticity, even in these sensory maps earlier, earlier on in development, yeah. there is, my understanding is that there's a lot of self-organization that happens. Basically a lot that's pre-specified yeah. and encoded in the genome. To what extent is that true in the sensory systems that you work on? And why would you want to have a fair amount of a sensory map or a structure in the brain sort of pre, pre-coded and embedded in the genome, ready to go?
1: Yeah, so this is the, um, the, the kind of, um, y- y- you know, one of those um, major fundamental questions is, to what extent do you pre-code the circuit? In the genome, and to what extent do you allow activity, plasticity, to self-organize the circuit? And um, this is phrased in various ways, and you know, in different contexts. It's a little bit like the nature versus nurture debate, where nature would be the genome coding the circuit structure, and nurture being activity shaping what the what the what circuit forms based upon experience or the environment, and. Um, you know, as is always the case, it's neither entirely one nor entirely the other. It's both nature or nurture that shapes the development of these circuits. And um, I'm uh, my background is a physicist, I'm trained as a physicist, I got my bachelor's and PhD in physics from uh, UC Berkeley. And um, uh, my PhD was studying um, um, dynamics, uh, nonlinear dynamics. And um, there is a kind of um, intrinsic structure. Uh, um, uh, dynamical systems have these intrinsic s- structure, which is self-organizing. And um, you, you know, in, the, in chaos theory, you talk about attractor networks and attractor states. And there's sort of the 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 the. Um, the forces or um, uh, nature of those systems lead to order in an in in internal self organizing way, a self organizing system. And so I was attracted to try to understand how the brain works insofar as it develops as a self organizing system. It has analogies to self organizing systems that have been studied in, in physics. And so um, when I learned about plasticity in the developing brain as a graduate student, I realized there was a certain uh, uh, um, uh, parallel to these self-organizing systems in physics, where um, the plasticity and the role of sensory experience in shaping the connections would um, lead to um, uh, accurate and efficient representations, could lead to accurate and efficient representations of the sensory world as a a computational uh, convenience. And so, Um, It is absolutely the case, this is a long-winded answer, but it's absolutely the case that both genes and the environment are important in the development of the nervous system. Um, I'm less interested in the role that genes play um, because I don't think they really tell us about how the brain functions. I'm much more interested in how activity, sensory experience, shapes the development of the circuits because – that self-organization, I think, gives you fundamental clues about brain function. How is it the brain organizes itself? It's a self-organizing system, really teaches you about how the brain works. Whereas um, the, the genes uh, the, the genes are the genes. They does not really tell you about function.
0: Interesting. One of the interesting phenomena in the brain that a lot of people may not be aware of is the idea Neurons are spontaneously active. Everyone, I think, has an intuitive understanding that, you know, when something happens, eyeballs see something, uh, neurons in in the in the visual system light up with some kind of pattern. But even in the complete absence of sensory information, neurons are active. Can you describe what spontaneous activity is and why yep. it's maybe interesting to think about in terms of self-organization?
1: Sure. So one of the um one of my earliest discoveries, and uh, this discoveries made by colleagues in the field, was that um, much of the brain appears to self-brain circuits. In the visual system, again, is where we've studied this in, in greatest detail, appears to self-organize before vision. That is, many of the fundamental circuits that are responsible for representing the visual world, like location of stimuli in space, or uh, orientation of edges, or direction of, mo- of of movement of objects in space, the circuits that are responsible for that specific those specific um, response properties to location and direction and orientation form before vision, before the animal has seen, and uh, so that um, that suggested that there must be genetic mechanisms that are responsible for the formation of the circuits, or That there was activity in the system that was present prior to vision that helped the circuit reorganize. And again, me and colleagues uh, demonstrated the presence of this early uh, spontaneous activity, activity which is actually generated in the nervous system prior to vision that helps organize or um, uh, train the circuit to form these uh, sophisticated circuits for locating uh, the um, location of objects or the direction of motion of objects in visual space. So it's activity that's intrinsic to the nervous system that's not stimulated by outside um, light. um, And that early activity, this spontaneous activity is important for um, developing particular circuits uh, in the brain. And uh, an analogy which I think is apt and appropriate is um, the kind of activity, dreaming activity. What I what I refer is to dreaming. Nobody is um, uh, surprised or shocked that um, everybody dreams. Essentially, that dreaming activity is spontaneous activity in your dream state. You go to sleep; it's not um, it's not dictated by sensory stimulus. It's activity which is generated in the brain, which resembles some. Um, you know some activity you had in the during the day it might reflect some experience you had in the past or it might not or it might be completely imaginary and fictitious but it's a pattern activity in the brain which gives the some um, sense uh, you know some sensation some has typically visual properties or it might have olfactory or uh, somatosensory properties this is spontaneous activity in the brain in the adult brain the developing brain has spontaneous activity too it has its own intrinsic pattern of activity, which um, we and others have shown is important in the wiring of the brain itself. The self-organization of the brain during development is actually dependent upon this early spontaneous activity that's completely separate from sensory experience.
0: Interesting. Um, Michael, apologies, I'm going to pause real quick. So So that's interesting. What you're saying is you know we, we all dream every night, so we actually have direct experience of this kind of thing. The brain can uh, simulate the world even when it's not receiving inputs from the world. On the other hand, you know, I could imagine like you know when I go to sleep tonight, I'm going to dream. these kinds of simulations will be you know playing some story in my in my mind's eye. But I could also imagine that you know even though the sensory input has been, turned down while I'm sleeping, all of it's been informed by previous experiences I had while waking. And so in some sense, maybe the information got in there from the outside world and, and I retained it. But you've also done research showing that this type of thing happens even in the developing system of a, of a mouse before the mouse is ever even awake and opening its eyes in the world. So right. is t- tell me if this is accurate. What you're saying basically is, in mice, in the case of your lab, you can record from neurons in the visual system or look at them using a microscope, record them using an electrode. And the patterns of activity that you see in the developing nervous system before the mouse ever opens its eyes, look like they do when the mouse will later be opening its eyes and experiencing the world visually.
1: So uh, that's, that's not quite right, but it's close uh so the 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 difference is that um uh you know it's hard to it, uh, first of all i um so let me back up just a second we definitely see activity in the young mouse before it opens its eyes actually before the retina is functional so there's um, a robust spontaneous activity in the developing eye and brain before vision is possible the retina doesn't work and um, what we and others showed was that this early what we refer to as spontaneous activity that that's generated in the retina and propagates up to the brain is essential for the normal development of the visual circuits. So in the absence of this spontaneously generated activity in the retina, uh, neural circuits don't form correctly in the visual system. Um, what we uh, uh, further showed, which is, um, I think, most remarkable, is that this early spontaneous activity isn't random. It's not random um, um, firing of neurons in some kind of uh, um, sort of salt and pepper fashion or, you know, like fireworks or something like that. It doesn't have a random – it's not random in its feature, but it's actually highly patterned. And the remarkable thing is that this early activity in the retina resembles the activity that would be present if the animal was running forward through space. So it's a pattern activity which resembles the sensory experience the animal would see if it was running through the forest forward in space, not turning around in a circle, not moving backwards not stationary, but actually it resembles the pattern of activity in the retina that would be generated in the retina if the animal is running forward through space. And this um, pattern of activity propagates from the retina up into the brain circuits, including um, the lateral geniculate nucleus, the superior colliculus, and the visual cortex. So all the way up the visual hierarchy in, in mice. So I can't say whether the animal is sees something in a dreamlike state that resembles as what it would, you know, I, I can't interpret what the animal sees, that it's it looks like, um, if you, it seems like to the animal, like it's running forward through space. What I can say is the stimulus, that the activity that's generated in the retina and that propagates up into the brain, resembles the activity that would be present if the animal was running forward through space. And so it's just, a, it's a, an important distinction um, it's a, it's a little bit of a fine point, but I think it's an important distinct, distinction. I, I can't get in the brain of a mouse and know what it sees, but I can the activity patterns that are present are similar to the activity patterns it would see if it was running forward through space.
0: So it's as if the brain is more or less simulating the type of activity that's going to commonly come from visual experience in the world. Which will often be it is basically the idea that a common of moving through the world for the mouse is moving forward, and so that direction of motion is maybe the one that the brain is working on pre pre uh, pre coding or pre working on before the animal actually ever sees anything.
1: That's exactly right, and and I think it, it's um I think it's an evolutionary phenomenon. In other words, if you you know go back in evolution, um, animals like you know some primordial fish or amphibian or whatever the primordial beast that the mammals came from, were you know, swimming forward through space or moving forward through space. And um, uh, mammals have had a, um, evolutionary adaptation that uh, leads to a very extended gestation. So they've their the time in the womb is very long in comparison to say, and um, fish and frogs. And so um, during this, uh, a fish and frog, you know, hatches as a tadpole has a very primitive nervous system, and it continues to develop over many years. I mean, and, and many months, and um, uh, the that primitive nervous system has continuous wiring, continuous formation of circuits from the eye to the brain in the presence of visual stimulus. And for a fish or a tadpole, it's swimming forward through space, and so it's seeing. Stimulus come by it and under normal circumstances or in the primordial circumstances, the animal as its visual system was getting wired up would have present this continuous or a relatively continuous stimulus moving forward through space. So the world coming uh, uh, past it. Now, since mammals have an extended gestation, they're obviously not seeing the world um, that way. Actually, the circuits are forming um, prior to the animal can see. And it, it's my hypothesis that it substituted the, the um, div- it, it substituted a, a generation of spontaneous activity in the retina to mimic the kind of activity it would have seen in the sort of primordial soup as it was swimming forward through space. So it's it's mimicking the stimulus which was typical of uh, of what an animal would see with a shorter gestation. Earlier in evolution, by this generation of these spontaneous patterns of activity, and that leads to the formation of circuits which are appropriate for things like the detection of motion through space or neighborhood relationships, location of of objects in the in the visual world. I hope that makes a, a little bit of sense, Nick.
0: Yeah. Why would um, Why would spontaneous activity be observed in neurons in the first place? Is this something that is baked in? On purpose, quote unquote, by evolution, or is it in? Is it just sort of like uh, an inevitable, an inevitable noise artifact that comes from being cells?
1: Yeah. So, um, I I think cells, neurons have this um, t- you know feature that they they don't want to be silent. They they have these what's referred to uh, sort of homeostasis. They don't want to be too active, like firing all the time and going crazy, but they don't want to be silent either. If they're firing at high rates all the time, then they're burning out. If they're completely silent, then they're not doing anything. They're not being useful. So they have what appears to be a way to self-regulate their activity. So to regulate, for instance, the um, uh, ion channels in the membrane to maintain some basal level of activity. And so they're sort of spontaneously active naturally. And if you take away, for instance, their input, they'll ramp up their intrinsic membrane properties or the strength of their synapses to restore some level of activity. So there's a kind of homeostatic mechanism to maintain a a happy level of activity. But what we're talking about here is much more than that. We're not talking about individual neurons having a happy level of spontaneous activity, but actually patterns of activity between large cohorts of neurons that are patterned right it's activity amongst large cohorts of neurons which have specific spatial temporal patterns not individual neurons you know firing randomly uh with respect to each other so the neurons themselves have this homeostatic um tendency to be active and then in addition to that in during development what we showed is that there are um Uh, communication mechanisms between the neurons that lead to uh, coordinated patterns of activity, not just random firings of individual neurons.
0: And so when you're doing these experiments in the lab, can you try and paint a visual picture for people of how you actually observe these patterns? What do the experiments actually look like?
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, we make use of... um, um, modern optical imaging techniques and genetic expression techniques that allow us to um, uh, visualize with light the activity of neurons. And uh, you know the way that's done um, um, now commonly, is you use um, uh, gene expression techniques to uh, make neurons express a green fluorescent protein this uh, protein that's derived from jellyfish originally that actually has been modified to act as a activity sensor. It's called a GCAMP, okay? It's a green fluorescent protein, which is um, uh, um, linked to a calcium sensor, which is a measure of neural activity. So when the neurons are active, when they're firing action potentials, um, they glow brightly. And when they're inactive, when they're not firing action potentials, they do not glow brightly. So what we do is um, make the neurons of our interest in the visual system express this this uh, glowing protein, GFP, linked to the uh, uh, activity indicator, GCAMP, so that when they're active, they fluoresce bright- brightly. And with a microscope, by... Um, uh, just to, yeah, actually, all we need to do simply is peel back the skin above the skull because we can't see through the skin, but you can see through the skull to the brain. The fluorescence is so bright that especially in young animals, you can see right through the skull to the brain. And when the neurons are active, they light up like a Christmas tree and you can see the activity um, in with a microscope, with a pretty standard, simple microscope. So we're visualizing spontaneous activity in the brain through this optical technique uh, using you know, microscopes and these genetically encoded uh, activity indicators.
0: Hmm. So, so when you say that you see these patterns of activity, that's a very literal statement. You literally have tricks that allow you to watch the neurons actually light up.
1: That's right. That's exactly right. It's not just, you know, it's, it's not a figurative C. It's a literal C. They are fluorescing. They're glowing when they're active and we can see that glowing uh, activity.
0: So how do you think these pets, so, so where sort of in the brain are you observing this? Is it relatively close to the retina? Is it higher up? Is it, is it on these sensory maps or, or where is it in that hierarchy? Yes,
1: right. It's one of these sensory maps. Actually, we can do these experiments anywhere that's accessible by light, okay? So one of the challenges, if you're you know, deep in the brain, the light doesn't penetrate, and so you can't see the the neurons or the uh, the activity. So anywhere that's accessible uh, by light, you can see. And in um, in our experiments, the typical structures which we image is a structure called the visual cortex, the primary visual cortex, which is the uh, entry point for uh, visual information into the cortex, the cognitive part of the mammalian brain. And another typical visual structure, which we will image this uh, activity is called the superior colliculus, which sits at the roof of the midbrain, which is another important visual um, nucleus in, uh, in mammals and vertebrates. So those are the two typical areas of the brain that we image this activity, the superior colliculus and in the visual cortex. And in both of these structures, there are maps of the visual world. So that, for instance, neighboring neurons in the superior colliculus will respond to stimuli in neighboring locations in the visual world. So there's one of these morphed maps of the visual world in the superior colliculus and in the visual cortex. So when we see activity in one location in the superior colliculus, we know that corresponds to what would happen if you were stimulating one location in in the visual world because of this map.
0: So in some sense, you could watch the neurons light up in such an area and reconstruct what the animal might be seeing.
1: I, 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 in some sense, but I hesitate to draw that. I don't want to um, claim I can you know, step into the mind of a mouse and see what it sees. What I can tell you is the pattern of activity resembles the activity that would be present when you present this a particular visual stimulus. So in some sense, you're right but I hesitate to anthropomorphize too much.
0: So to what extent do you think this type of phenomenon is happening in the human brain? Is it maybe happening less because we have a more extended childhood and we're born in more of a state of helplessness compared to other animals, or is this likely happening to some extent in the human brain as well?
1: I I, I think it's happening in the human brain. Um, so of course the kinds of experiments we're doing, um, are virtually impossible to do in humans. Um, some uh, neural activity recordings can be done in uh, infants using uh, uh, techniques such as functional magnetic resonance imaging, but it doesn't have the resolution to be able to observe these spontaneous activity patterns that we can observe, observe in other mammals. So I, I actually, I don't know if, um, for with any um, certainty whether it's happening in humans. What I can say is, spontaneous activity in the retina happens in all other mammals for which it's been investigated. So non, other non-human primates, carnivores, um, and rodents, they all have this spontaneous uh, activity early in development prior to vision. So I presume it's also happening in humans, but I can't say uh, with certainty. Uh, so, so we know this early spontaneous activity exists, Um, The degree to which it's patterned in a variety of mammalian species is a little bit uncertain. So the specific patterns that we observe, we've observed in mice. We don't know whether this um, early activity that resembles moving forward through space is similar, will be similar in other mammals. And that's something we need to uh, find out. Um, But we just, we know for sure that there is early Spontaneous activity. We just don't know what the details about the pattern in other mammals, and we actually know nothing about humans uh, specifically. Mm-hmm.
0: So so far, we've established that all neurons are spontaneously active. In some sense, they're they're intrinsically built so that they're going to want to be uh, spontaneously active at some rate. But not right. only are they spontaneously active, when you guys actually look at what they're doing in the developing mouse brain, you see that the activity is patterned. It has some kind of pattern. And remarkably, the pattern looks—it looks very much like uh, the patterns that you might see when the animal is actually looking at something. How do you? How does? How does the brain actually give it this pattern? What's what's physically happening so that it knows how to create these specific patterns, and you don't just see like a random array of activity?
1: Yeah. So that's uh, certainly one of the most fascinating things about this is, in um, in order to understand. Um, these activity patterns and manipulate them, change them to be able to determine what their function is, what their role is in brain circuit development. We had to, uh, we had to understand the source and uh, the res- and you know what the system was responsible for generating the specific pattern that we see. So a lot of our work has been um, what I would call mechanistic work in dissecting the source and, um, um, and a method by which, the activity has this pattern nature. And so we know a lot about it. I I don't think we we understand it completely, but we know a lot about it. So one of the most interesting things is that not only are neurons intrinsically do they like to be active, but there are specific neural connections in the developing retina that form for the express purpose of generating these wave-like activity patterns that resemble the animal moving forward through space. What I mean is that they're not random connections that form during development. There's are specific neural s- synapses connections in the developing uh, retina which form in a pattern to generate these waves that resemble uh, forward motion through space. They're they're and they're developmentally controlled. So the circuits form for a specific epoch during development for. Uh, In mice, it's uh, about a week. And then those circuits decay away and the activity patterns change and the animal becomes um, has a visual function. So it responds to light instead of generating these patterned waves of activity. So there is a transient mechanism, a transient circuit that's formed during development, we think, specifically to generate these waves of activity that mimic this forward motion through space for the purpose of training the visual system so that it can see once the animal eventually does open its eyes. So it's a, a, it's a developmental adaptation um, with a specific uh, time point during development when the circuit forms and then dissipates and becomes something completely different. Mm -hmm.
0: Is it possible to actually test an idea like that where somehow you actually disrupt these patterns of activity before eye opening and then show that the animals less at less able to perceive things like optic flow
1: right yeah yes it is and that's you know that's one of sort of an important um a, a technique is to test the um the role of these early spontaneous activity patterns they're sort of what i would refer to as their causative role if you disrupt these activity patterns what happens to the development of the neural circuit so there's a very um coarse way, a sort of sledgehammer way, which is to eliminate the activity completely, just basically completely block it. And if you completely block this early spontaneous activity, then the neural circuits that form are very perturbed. The animal's vision uh, is very perturbed. It's um, it's it sort of, would, would see the, the rough shape and position of an object, but not be able to detect any specific features it, mm. a, after it opens its eyes. If instead of just completely eliminating the activity, you change its a pattern. So uh, as I described, the early activity patterns appear to resemble forward motion through space. If instead of having activity patterns that resemble forward motion through space, you make it resemble random activity, sort of, sort of random motion. Mm-hmm. motion um, so there's patterns, but it's not a consistent pattern as if the animal was moving forward through space. You, we can manipulate the circuit so that it's this random pattern and then when we look at the animal's neural response properties when it opens its eyes what we observed is the animal um doesn't detect the neural the neural system doesn't detect motion well it has sort of primitive motion detection properties but it doesn't do a good job of detecting motion so um by altering the pattern of activity in the developing retina, not completely eliminating it, but making it random instead of this forward um, motion flow. And then measuring the response properties of neurons in the visual system after the animal opens its eyes. We've shown that this forward motion through space activity pattern is essential for the ability of the animal to detect well motion once it does open its eyes
0: interesting so so there's a direct relationship between these patterns of activity and some some I mean they truly are pre-training the circuits to actually do something
1: That's exactly right because if the if you disrupt this early uh, pattern activity and make it random the circuit doesn't form normally so that the neurons don't respond well to uh, motion stimuli once it does open its eyes and it's able to see so it it really does appear to be essential for the development of the normal circuit for visual motion detection.
0: Hmm. So this does, I mean, we mentioned dreams earlier. This does remind me of phenomena in the sleep literature where, you know, you record from neurons in a particular part of the brain when a mouse or a rat is sleeping and they resemble the patterns that you see when the mouse was actually going through a maze and figuring something out. So it's, it's as if these simulations are happening to train the circuits, even in the absence of the direct sensory input from the external world. Is, is that how you would begin to think about what's going on in a dream, say, something like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, that. I mean that's exactly right. That's a, that's a wonderful analogy. So my colleague at Yale, his name is uh, Professor George Dragoy, has studied these early activity patterns in the developing hippocampus, these sort of dreamlike patterns of activity, which we think are important for memory consolidation in the hippocampus. And what he's shown is that these pre-pattern activity in the developing hippocampus, this sort of dream-like activity in the hippocampus um, at night is necessary for the con- consolidation of hippocampal uh, um, memory, this place um, wh- 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 the hippocampus is responsible primarily for um, a place that has this uh, a memory of where you are in space. These place cell memories are in part driven by dream-like activity after the animal uh, um, is done with a sensory experience and you know between one day and the next at night in these dream-like states this pattern activity is necessary for consolidating its memory of location and space which it saw the previous day so this sort of pattern dream-like activity is a pretty direct analogy to what we're observing in the developing visual system it's not responsible for memory Instead, what we're saying is that this early dreamlike activity is mimicking a stimulus, which is essential for the development, the self-organization of the circuit, so that when the animal opens its eyes, it's able to see. Instead of consolidating a memory, it's consolidating a circuit that's responsible for vision when the animal opens its eyes.
0: Hmm. So I want to talk about human brain development for a little while. So humans as I mentioned earlier, you know, and and I think everyone's aware of this humans, basically, as far as I know, we have the longest childhood of any animal and we're generally the least developed animal and the most helpless at birth compared to most other mammals. And more or less what this means is we've got this sort of super wide window where there's a lot of plasticity and a lot of room for learning. And the flip side of that is maybe there's sort of less baked into our brain compared to other animals. So how, how would say a human and a mouse compare in that respect? Is it actually true? And how much, how much of the human brain would you say is uh, shaped by experience versus how much is already there preformed? Uh,
1: so uh, your description, I think, is pretty accurate. And uh, the, the, I think what happens in the human brain is very similar to what happens in the mouse brain. Except there are, are obvious differences in the human brain. And uh, the, the obvious difference is there's been a dramatic elaboration of the cortex. So, you know, the frontal lobes and the parietal lobes are dramatically enlarged relative to a rodent. And um, so the difference in um, gestation and, you know, brain circuit development and plasticity is related more to the difference in the evolution of the brain than it is differences in, the, um, in, the, in how the brain develops. What I mean by that is, I think the circuits that are responsible for the sort of in the superior colliculus and the visual cortex, the entry-level circuits mm-hmm. and the role of this early spontaneous activity. And then um, the fact that the development is so, ro- uh, plasticity is so robust early in development and becomes more fixed is true in the human as well except for the human has so much more brain that's more highly evolved, sort of been added on relative to the mouse. And those circuits tend to be much more plastic and um, have longer developmental periods associated with them and are, have, show robust plasticity in the adult. So I think there's really strong analogies, very similar, except the, the fundamental difference in the human brain and the rodent brain is that we have so much more higher order cortex. And that stuff is really plastic and has very prolonged gestation or prolonged development. Hmm.
0: I also wanted to ask you about the concept of critical periods. So the one that is probably most commonly learned in school is maybe what you hear about in a psychology class when you talk about language development in human children. But there's also critical periods in developing sensory systems in, in mice and other animals. So Can you define what a critical period is and maybe start by talking about what we know from critical period studies in the the visual system of mice?
1: Sure. So, uh, I mean, uh, uh, critical periods are an important um, concept in uh, understanding brain circuit development. Um, They're sometimes misunderstood because they're they're thought of as um, open and shut. Like there's a box, a door that opens and then a door that closes. And mm-hmm. I think it's, it's much more soft than that. So there's a roll on and a roll off and the plasticity doesn't completely disappear. It just becomes much, much less. robust. So with that preface, with that premise, the concept of a critical period for the visual system in a mouse is very similar uh, to a human. And so the example in, uh, and so I'm gonna actually use the human as a, um, a, a, a demonstration of the visual system critical period. If in a human, you are born with um, um, one eye which is occluded. It might be because you have a physical damage, say, to the eyelid, so the eyelid is droopy or closed. You might have a congenital cataract in that eye, so the vision is is blurry. It's opaque because of the thick uh, of, of the um, optical effect of the cataract. If you um, have that visual, so you have trouble seeing through that eye uh, early in development, it, if that um, trouble, physical trouble, seeing through that eye, through that eye persists after a few years, you lose the ability to see through that eye, and th- this is uh, dramatic and uh, easily demonstrated. By you can um, restore the vision in the eye. For instance, you can fix the fix the physical damage to the eyelid or uh, fix the cataract. In um, And this is actually commonly done now in adults. So adults develop cataracts, often they're age-related. You you can have a cataract, you can develop a cataract as an adult, have it for decades, and then have the surgery to repair the cataract. So the optical properties of the eyes are restored to normal. And you can immediately see through that eye as if you never uh, had lost vision in that eye. Whereas if you have a cataract as a baby, you're born with that cataract, or you develop it very early after birth, unless you fix the optimal of the eye within a year or two, you will lose the ability to see normally through that eye. Hmm. No matter whether you have uh, years or decades of normal vision, if you don't fix the eye to normal working order early, you lose the ability to see through that eye. And so that's a critical period for visual circuit development, which is, in, in this case, is the first couple years after birth in a human. So this has had a fundamental effect, for instance, for how we treat um, vision deficits in babies. So if a baby is born with some vision, it might be a congenital cataract, or it might be the eyes are deviating so that they're looking in two different places at one time. This is sometimes called strabismus. You want to fix the physical and optical properties of the eye. So it's normal so that the neural spits in the brain get wired with normal visual experience. And if you don't fix it right away within the first couple of years, you lose the ability to see normally through the deviated or the cataract eye, even though optically you've completely restored it. So that's a fixed critical period for the formation of visual response or visual behavior and the same thing happens in a mouse it's got essentially the same critical period so if you blur the vision through one eye or you deviate the eye then you um, lead to abnormal vision in the deviated eye or the blurred eye and that critical period exists um, in the first couple months after birth for a mouse and by the time you reach about two months after birth then that critical period is gone and deviating or, or blurring vision in a mouse eye has much more modest or no effects so the mouse visual system and the development of the neural circuits for visual response properties in that context is very similar to a human although the timing is completely different just because development occurs over a different time scale
0: mm-hmm. so once those critical periods are have passed even though there's not like one day where they sharply turn off and it's this sort of slow roll in and roll out is it Possible to open up some of those again pharmacologically say
1: yeah so of course um, you know we are we and others are working hard now to um, identify pharmacological or genetic or other um, interventional techniques to restore critical periods and there have there's been some significant progress in uh, understanding what the shapes the time course of a critical period and in producing some restoration of plasticity in the adult. But um, uh, we we haven't cracked the nut yet. So uh, for instance, it appears to be the case in the visual system that the development of inhibitory circuits, circuits that are mediated, synapses are mediated by GABA synapses, GABAergic synapses, inhibitory synapses in the developing visual cortex. The development of those circuits uh is really important for shaping the time course of the critical period and if you delay or prolong the development of those GABAergic circuits you can prolong the time course of the critical period and there's some um hope that if you uh, could reintroduce some of those GABAergic synapses of those GABAergic neurons in the adult you might be able to reintroduce a critical period in the, in the adult so there are a number of attempts to identify um, what changes over the course of the development to uh, frame the critical period and reintroduce the developmental elements in the adult to restore the critical period plasticity. And uh, I mean, I think it's very, very promising uh, research. But um, it's um, it, it, it hasn't. Uh, we haven't cracked the nut yet. We don't. It, it's probably multiple factors that change, and we may need to uh, adjust. To reintroduce multiple factors in order to fully restore uh, plasticity, critical period plasticity say in the visual system in the adult. Hmm.
0: So one of the things I also wanted to ask you about was the relationship between plasticity and the direction you give it through experience, particularly in the context of something like a neuropsychiatric disorder. So for example, A lot of the guests I've had in the podcast have talked about things like SSRIs, or more recently, some of the newer results with psychedelics, where it seems in general like what's happening here is some of these drugs, some more than others, induce heightened levels of plasticity that persist for some amount of time, but the plasticity itself is not intrinsically a good thing. It needs to be directed in one way or the other. So the simple idea here would be that this is what psychotherapy does. It's providing direction, whereas the drug is providing this kind of permissive signal for plasticity. Do you think that's a a fair way to think about how drugs that induce plasticity, uh, we should think about them? Or, Or is it possible that just inducing or shutting off plasticity can be intrinsically Beneficial.
1: I um, I think in some circumstances, introducing the plasticity can be intrinsically beneficial. But if you you know draw on the example of the self organizing nervous system that we see over the course of development, if if the self organization is misdirected, mm-hmm. so the activity which the plastici- the activity that's present when the plasticity is reintroduced is abnormal. Or leads to self-organization of a perturbed circuit. It's not helpful, and so not only um, not only should one reintroduce the plasticity, but the but the um, you know the activity that is present, the training or the um, you know the um, the uh, you know the. Um, therapy that one might undergo when you introduce a plasticity has to be appropriate in order to train the circuit to a more functional state. So uh, I, I think the analogy or the, uh, the approach that you described is, is an accurate one. Y- you have to be careful when you introduce plasticity because you might end up actually destroying or disrupting the circuit rather than um, um, moving it towards a more functional state. So let's go back to the analogy that I I, um, I brought up at the very beginning. If you have a foundation and you have a cognitive circuit, which is built on the foundation, if you introduce plasticity into the foundation, and because maybe there's a there's a piece of the foundation that's broken, if you introduce plasticity in the foundation and the plasticity is such that it just falls apart, it melts away, it doesn't do any good to the cognitive circuits. They'll also melt away and they won't function well as well they won't function better either so if you're going to reintroduce plasticity into a circuit especially in the foundational circuits you better make sure that the activity that's present helps the circuit organize or reorganize itself in a way which is functionally productive and that's the sort of um you know know, cognitive therapy which one might undergo or training uh sensory experience training or motor training to help the circuit form in a productive way instead of a destructive way.
0: Yeah, I think that's I think that's an important point. I, I liked how you put that that you know, you could have a drug induce a heightened state of plasticity and that can be directed towards a positive outcome but it can also be misdirected if it's not if it's not being handled appropriately. Exactly. Yep. So, one of the one of the things that you always hear people say And, you know, the number always shifts a little bit. And I feel like the number over my lifetime has always gone up is that the human brain isn't fully developed until whenever, you know, age 25 or something. And this is typically Mm -hmm. in the context of, you know, talking about some social issue or policy decision. You know, we should or shouldn't Mm -hmm. allow people to do things at a certain age because Mm -hmm. the brain isn't fully formed until some point. Is that true? Does it make sense to even talk about like a Age an approximate age when brain development is over, is it ever over?
1: Ah, uh, yeah, so uh, um, yeah, it's a uh, very thought provoking question so um I, I you know I like to think that um, we never stop developing. I agree with you that you know what we um learning in the adult is just an extension of the developmental plasticity.
0: Mm.
1: Um, so, what, what may be, um, m- what, what may another way of saying it is that if we go back to this uh, critical period distinction, it's like the, the, you know, the circuits that form are more are most malleable malleable in certain epochs during development, and actually, um, those are real epochs. So, if it's too early. The circuit is not malleable, it's not uh, subject to um, plasticity at all. And if it's too late, it's much less malleable. And I think the sort of cognitive circuits that you're referring to that develop in the frontal cortex, particularly in the, in the 20s, they're most malleable in the 20s. That's when those circuits are, are forming most robustly and are most plastic. And then the plasticity reduces to a degree in the adult. And so uh, it never completely goes away. And I would say the adult plasticity is like a continuation of a developmental phenomenon. Um, It's just the robust plasticity is, um, the the most robust plasticity has already passed it by, by the time you get say into your thirties. So uh, I I agree with you. I think it's, it's maybe inappropriate to talk about um, you know, a, a, an end to development because one can view adult learning and plasticity as just a continuation of a developmental phenomenon. And, uh, um, it's just the latest and most robust plasticity you see in the human brain is for cognitive circuits, which are the things that form in the twenties, which lead to things like, um, you know, planning and, um, Uh, the ability to uh, project yourself into the future and anticipate uh, future events. those sort of cognitive circuits are most plastic and form most robustly in your 20s. Hmm.
0: Do you think that, um, you know, stepping away from some of the hardcore science for a moment, do you think, a lot of people have have commented on what I'm about to describe, but do you think Mm -hmm. it's likely or plausible that as we've developed new technologies and as, you know, even something like COVID where you've got children now who um, are not going to school for the lengths of time that they were, um, or maybe, you know, they're taking a year where they're essentially homeschooled. You've got things like, you know, our cell phones, which are so mesmerizing that we're spending not, not necessarily less time interacting with humans, but certainly we're interacting with humans in a different kind of way as as we achieve more and more technological process and technology comes into our lives more, is it plausible that the way we interact with technology is shifting the way that the brain is developing and shifting some of these epics of development such that the way that the the kids are coming up today or developing today is literally different than the way it was, say, for you, in terms of brain development?
1: Um, uh, Yes. I think it is. I think I think it's likely the case, but I don't think it's shifting the time course necessarily. But it's sh- it's shifting the outcome. Mm-hmm. So you know, the maybe one way to think about it is the kind of typical typical experience, the sensory and social experience, um, children now um, participate in is different than what I did as a child. Right? Mm-hmm. We didn't have cell phones. And you know, TVs were something you watched for an hour or two. You didn't, you, weren't, uh, you didn't have the ability to watch a screen for this period of time that kids do now. And you, uh, you, know, you didn't interact with a computer screen like you do uh, kids do now. So um, I don't think those differences between what I experienced and what uh, kids do now changed the developmental epics. But what they will do, or what they could plausibly do, is change the outcome of the development, the time course, what happens over the course of development. Hmm. So you know the circuits that form, the social interaction circuits that form in particular, are probably different now than they were before. You know, screens because the kind of social interactions are different. But I, I don't think that's necessarily good or bad. It's just it's different. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't think one can say whether it's uh, it, you know one could one could argue that um, the circuit is adapting to the experience the animal the human uh, receives. So it's adapting in a um, in a you know evolutionarily appropriate way to to the experience that a kid now has. Um, it's, uh, But I think it is reasonable to argue that it, literally the brains, the typical brain that's forming is different now than the typical brain that formed 50 or 100 years ago when technology was so very, very different. I, I just I, I wouldn't say it's it's worse and I wouldn't say it's better either. Mm-hmm. It's part of our adaptability as a species. It reflects the adaptability of the species. And, and let me just make a, um, you know, go out on the limb a little bit. One could argue that social networks have also changed. Mm -hmm. You know, as our sensory or as our experience changes, as our interactions change, and our interactions, for instance, are over the course of uh, computers or the web um, or um, social media, then it likely changes the kinds of social networks that form, which are, after all, Uh, networks of networks of neurons right our brains are networks of neurons and social networks are networks of brains so they're networks of networks of neurons so -hmm. the social networks probably have been affected by the changes in the way we interact with our environment in ways which are very hard to anticipate or even uh, describe well
0: interesting yeah no i agree that you can't you can't automatically say that this type of change in the development of brains given these new social and sensory inputs that we have today is good or bad. One thing that I think you could say though is because the rate of change driven by technology increases over time, the the delta between generations in terms of their brain structure is getting bigger. Like if you went back a thousand years or a million years to our ancestors, right? The social and sensory environment that you had compared to your grandparents was more or less identical. Whereas today it's more or less guaranteed to be very, very different.
1: Absolutely true. Yeah, absolutely true. So the, you know, the differences in experience and um, even differences in nutrition, mm are um, much more significant now or the last over the last um, 50 or 100 years than they were say a thousand versus 1,100 years ago. And so um, you know one can anticipate, yeah you're right and so there may be uh, even bigger changes in our brain circuits that form as a result of those large changes in both the experience that people are um, exposed to over the course of their life and also, differences in our environment like nutrition and um, you know, the, and other things like you know, daylight versus nighttime, we're not exposed to circadian rhythms as uniformly now as we were a hundred years ago when, uh, or, or 200 years ago, years ago when there was less um, artificial light. So there are a lot of things that have changed dramatically. Um, it's hard, but it, it, it uh, yeah. And it's a great point, uh, um, hard to study
0: mm-hmm so in general as a neuroscientist who's been studying brain development for so long how has your understanding of brain development influenced your general perspective on how you manage your own brain and mental health as you age
1: ah uh, um, <clears throat> so um yeah actually uh interestingly enough i think the the um what the biggest impact on brain and mental health the 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 way that you can most positively impact your brain and mental health is through um, relatively um, straightforward means of having great um, nutrition, exercise, and sleep and um I, you know, those are very, very fundamental, um, you know, behaviors, which anybody, hopefully anybody can improve to, um, to sustain their mental state, their healthy brain state, exercise uh, nutrition, having good nutrition and good sleep. And, uh, you know, I, um, I, I guess, um, My work over the course of the last few decades has um, maybe it's um, it hasn't fundamentally changed that point. Hmm. Um, I I think what um, what my work and my colleagues, many colleagues work has done has perhaps shown what the effects of you know, exercise and good nutrition and, um, uh, you know, and sleep have on the brain. But the fact that exercise, good nutrition and sleep are fundamentally the, the ways, the best ways to preserve your brain function is, um, it's simple, um, but it's, it was true and understood 50 years ago, as much as it is uh, today. I mean, the, the secondary effect, I, I would say is that Um, Things like um, continuing to um, be involved, you know, uh, uh, intellectually involved. So Mm -hmm. a variety of reading and, you know, doing puzzles for fun and interacting socially with people, that sort of constant or ongoing stimulus is um, essential for um, preservation of uh, uh, healthy brain function. I, but I actually think that those are secondary effects to the sleep and, and exercise and uh, nutrition uh, that I described earlier. But it's clearly the case that y- you know healthy brain function also depends upon uh, healthy brain activity. And that is um, the sort of the plasticity or sustenance of plasticity. Sustaining good, healthy circuits is in part dependent upon activating, continuing to activate those circuits in a healthy way.
0: Yeah it's it's amazing how no matter how much we learn how much you read or how much advice you ask you know it really just does boil down to the, the most basic aspects of life good food good sleep and and good interactions
1: yeah that's right and it and uh, you know again i think that probably goes there's a you know strong evolutionary um um reason for that um so, uh, but, um, you know, uh, beyond those you know, basic fundamentals, exercise and sleep and food, you can do a lot to sustain a healthy brain, but don't ignore those fundamentals.
0: Well, Michael, thank you for your time. This has been fascinating. Are there any final thoughts about brain development or neuroscience generally that you want to leave people with? Uh,
1: sh- uh, yeah. I mean, I think this is a, um, an amazing time to be a scientist. It's in particular an amazing time to be a brain scientist, a neuroscientist. The tools and techniques that we have to dig in and uh, look at what brain activity and um, manipulate to understand brain activity and brain development are amazing. And they're expanding all the time. And our knowledge of how the brain works and how the brain develops is expanding dramatically over time. I think there's lots to look forward to both in our understanding of the fundamental mechanisms of brain development and the prospects for doing things like restorative uh, regeneration of neural circuits or, uh, or behavior, if we can understand the basic mechanisms of uh, brain function and um, brain plasticity and development. It's a really exciting time to be a scientist. And in particular, it's a really exciting time to study how the brain
0: how the brain works, how the mind works. Dr. Michael Crare thank you. Thanks, Nick.